Hey, Mosaic. Go ahead, grab a seat if you haven't already. Hey, Aaron here. I am obviously not with you this morning. I'm actually down at River Tree. Uh, this is our first Sunday without their founding pastor, and so we're helping them in this transition. And so I'm down there, not with you, obviously, but this morning I am really excited for you. Uh, we've got a gal who's going to be sharing with us who um, I have a lot of admiration for. Uh, her name is Deidre Riggs. Deidre is a writer. She is a blogger. She's a speaker. Um, she is very passionate about a number of things, uh, one of those being uh, working towards racial reconciliation and helping uh, churches and people uh, have hard conversations uh, in gracious ways. And so during um, all of the things that were going on with Ferguson and continue to go on, she was actually on the ground uh, early on during the riots that were happening there, uh, writing, praying with people, talking to people. Uh, and so she has uh, just a wealth of knowledge and some really unique uh, experiences and perspective uh, to bring to the conversation. And so I'm very excited for her to be with us this morning. Uh, if you would, uh, give Deidre Riggs a warm mosaic welcome. Good morning. How are you? Okay, so I'm not a morning person, so I did that 9 o'clock service thing. That was hard. Woo. But you guys are just a little bit more energetic, I think, than them. Um, I love them. They were awesome, too. They were awesome, too. Um, thanks for having me here. It's really a big deal. A couple things. There's really a big deal about. One is for a pastor to have somebody come speak at their church while they're not here. That is a big deal. Um, so I am just really grateful to your pastor and to all of the people who have greeted me here and to you guys for letting me be here. And you're like, what is she going to talk about? Why is she here? So that's a big deal. And the second thing that's a big deal is for a congregation in America to have conversations about race in America. And I know that there is probably, there are probably opinions in here about that that run the gamut. And that is great. I welcome that. I think that's wonderful. Um, and my wish, prayer, is just that this would give you another step in the conversation. Not to say, when you leave here, you have to think a certain way and be a certain way and have decided a certain thing, but just to give you some tools for conversation moving forward. So, let's pray real quick, and then I'll tell you about those people up there. <clears throat> God, thanks for um, this morning. Thanks for who you are. Thanks for this church and for the pastor and for the ministry here. Thank you for the exciting things that are happening with River Tree and how you are continuing your ministry downtown, and you know how passionate I am about that, so I'm just really excited for that. I pray that you will bless their ministry beyond their wildest imagination. Help them to live into the fear of something new and the excitement that's there, to trust you and to trust um, the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us in many, many ways beyond what we ever thought possible. I pray that you'd be with me as I talk and with um, all of us as we listen to your Holy Spirit and that when we leave here today, we will not be the same as when we got here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I kind of think that some of you probably know my kids, which makes me a little feel a little weird here. But that's okay. That's um, me and my husband in the top corner right there. And he is the man of my dreams. And we have been married for 28 years. And he's a pastor of a church downtown, First Baptist Church, which is why he's not here with me right now, because he's working. 
Um, and we came to Nebraska nine years ago for this church, First Baptist, Baptist, First Baptist Church in Lincoln. And then that's our daughter. She's here actually with me today. Yay! And um, her name is, so I can look over there and get some affirmation. Um, so her name is Alexandra. She went to college in Pennsylvania, Eastern University. And then our son, Jordan, is in the top right-hand corner. He lives in Brooklyn, and he's a filmmaker out there. And yesterday was his birthday, and I'm going there Tuesday to see him. I am a Michigan State Spartan. I should probably have said that at the end, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. And I love disco music. I will never be reformed. I just love it. Keep your opinions about that to yourself. I will, I will keep disco music alive, single-handedly, just so you know. When you hear it, it is my fault. And I believe that autumn is the best season in Nebraska. I don't know if you believe that as well, but look out. I mean, it's just beautiful out there. I work full-time for The High Calling, which is an online community. We encourage everyday conversations about work, life, and God, and we believe that whatever work you do, if it's legal, that God is pleased with it. Even some illegal work, right? Like helping people get out of sex trafficking and stuff like that. It is your high calling that pastors and people who went to seminary do not have a monopoly on the high calling. That what you do is your high calling, and God is pleased with that. And my blog is Jumping Tandem, and you can find me there at DeidraRiggs.com. And so on my blog, um, you know, I just started that blog as a kind of hobby. I moved to Nebraska. I didn't know anybody. All my family was on the East Coast, and so I started blogging, and one year um, I decided to start talking about race on there, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, and it has just been the thing that um, really has taken off, and people have, my goal there is to create safe space for people to have difficult conversations about race, and so hopefully I can share a little bit of that with us here today. I have three passages of scripture that kind of drive me and govern my life. Um, so really four, because John 3.16, right? We can't get away without having that as the foundation. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should, have everla- should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the foundation for all things for me. And then on top of that, um, I have these, these three passages of scripture, and the first one is Matthew, from Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 22, and I'm reading from the message version of the Bible. It says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. So I think that as a people, um, American people, we don't like confrontation. We would much rather have everything go smoothly, and we would like to have people around us who agree with us. And then things like Ferguson happen or, you know, other things in this world happen, and they polarize our communities, including the church. And we take to Facebook, which is not mentioned strangely here in this message version of the Bible. Neither is Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat. Um, But we take to those things first. And what the Bible has told us very clearly is that when someone offends us, we go to them. 
So that is the way that Jesus, the instruction that Jesus left us for when we get upset with one another. And I had to learn it the hard way. What Jesus teaches us, it actually works. So I, you know, I would have confrontate, people would offend me or rub me the wrong way, and I would get all snooty and go talk to my friends about them. And it never worked out as well as when I actually went to that person and said, you know what? This thing happened between us, and let's just talk it through. So, you know, it works. Okay, the second thing that I want to share with you is from John chapter 13, verse 35. And it says, Let me give you a new command. This is Jesus talking. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. So it doesn't talk about church growth strategy or numbers in church or the budget or the size of the church building or the job or the house we live in or the car that we drive or how many friends we have on Facebook. It says, people will know that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for one another. And so, you know, that just kind of, I don't get it right all the time, but I know that in my heart, the way that the world will look at me is not if I'm passing out tracks and, you know, Even serving at Matt Talbot, you know, that's not necessarily how people will know that I'm a Christian. Not that those things are bad, but the way that the world will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ is because of the love we have for one another. So the third passage of scripture, and you can go to the next slide on this one, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And this really is where I stand. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall that we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped, and then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, He created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everyone. And I am foolish enough to believe that. I believe, I believe, I'm foolish enough to believe the Bible, okay? So let's just start there. But I am foolish enough to believe this little piece of, this passage of scripture that says that when Jesus came, he tore down all the walls that we set up to keep each other at a distance. So Jesus is not in the business, the Holy Spirit is not in the business of putting line, drawing lines and building walls between us. We do that. What Jesus did was he came and tore down those walls. So you can go to the next slide. Um, way back, like nearly 50 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King said that the most segregated hour in Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And here we are, 2014, and it's still kind of like that, wouldn't you say? That when um, we go to work, and we go to school, and we go to volunteer, and there are people there who don't look like us, don't necessarily, maybe don't speak the same language we speak, but then we Christians on Sunday go to our white church, black church, Latin American church, you know, Asian church. We divide ourselves on Sunday morning, and I noticed this first when I was two years old. This has been my, like, I don't know. I feel like my whole life has come together for this moment in time, and it started when I was two years old. We moved to, I've moved 23 times. We moved when I was two to New Jersey, 
And my parents said, we need to find a church. They thought this was important to them. And they wanted to find a Baptist church. So they looked in the newspaper. They found a Baptist church, and they went to it. And as is our custom, we were late. And so we walked into the door, to the back. This is, of course, this is, I have no memory of this. This is what my parents tell me. And it was the kind of church that you walk into the lobby. They called it the narthex. And there were two doors that you could open from the center. You couldn't see through them. You open them, and then there's the aisle. Perfect church for a wedding, right? Aisle, and then the pews on either side. So my parents opened up the doors, and they looked in. This was back in the 60s. And they said, oh, this is not the church for us. They looked at each other, and they said, let us leave because it was a white church. And so they just didn't think that they would be welcome there. But I was two, and I had walked halfway down the aisle, and someone had to get me. So what do you do? Like, do you go scoop her up and run and leave? Or does one parent get to go home and eat pancakes, and the other one gets the child and has to sit through the service? And what they decided was that they would both go in um, and sit with me through the service. And I have asked them over all these years, what is it? that made you go back because we stayed at that church and for my whole, till I was 18 years old, I was one member of one of the only families of color in this church where we grew up, where I grew up. Um, And that continued because the pastor of that church moved to Michigan, yay Spartans, and um, later my dad was transferred, we were transferred to Michigan, and we went to that church, because that pastor was just amazing, an amazing, amazing man. So I was, you know, two, and then starting to come to start to reason for myself and think to myself, for myself, and I would go to school, and I would say, school does not look like my church, and I would go to visit my grandparents in Virginia, and I'd say, this church does not look like my church at home. What is up with this? And I would go to, um, the marketplace, you know, in the marketplace with my family, and I would see the world is not black and white like this. Why is the church black and white like this? For me, it was black and white. There's more than, there's more diversity than just black and white, but for me, it was black and white. So my question for my whole entire life has been, why can't the church figure out how to worship across racial lines? I just have not been able to figure it out. And so, I guess I'm on this journey, and here I am. I get to talk to you about it a little bit, about where, I, where I've come with that. So why is it important that we even talk about this in the church? I mean, we have a black president, right? So we've made so much progress, and we have. We really, really have made so much progress. But I believe that Christ intends for the body of Christ and the church, the capital C Church, to be light and salt in the world so that we are the people that when something like Trayvon Martin or Ferguson or children coming from um, over the border and without parents um, or Ebola is in another country or things are happening with ISIS, that I believe that the, the Lord intends for the church and the body of Christ to be where the world looks for direction. But what happens with us in the body of Christ is that we kind of follow the leader, that when something like that happens that polarizes the world, we go polarized too. We choose a side, we dig in our heels, and we can't figure out how to come together so that we can be light and salt in the world. And I think that God intends for us to be light and salt in the world. So one way we can do that is to figure out how to get over ourselves and learn to worship across racial and cultural lines. But how? How do we do this? Well, 
I think one of the first things that we do, and you can go to the next slide, is that we remember when we come to conversations like these, and these conversations are really awkward and difficult and scary, and they might feel dangerous, and um, really you might decide, hey, I don't even want to get in the conversation, and that's fine. If that's where you are, that's cool. But everyone is on a journey here. So some of us are right at the beginning. Some of us have not even put on our sneakers. Some of us are, you know, on the couch, flipping the remote, and that's okay. That's all right. Other people are way down the line on this journey, and it, you just, we just need to remember when we come to the conversation that people come to the conversation from different points on the journey. And wherever you are on that journey is okay. Be in that place and come to the conversation when you get ready. The next thing to remember when you actually get to the conversation, and you can go to the next slide, is let's not whack-a-mole each other. You know, you know that game whack-a-mole where that little that little mole thing is just peeking its head up over the edge. And what? look at that woman. She's just like ready. She's going to get him. And I think that we do that a lot of the time in conversations like this, especially in conversations about race and, and in the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, everything's supposed to be beautiful and lovely and wonderful. But we, um, when, when I first started having conversations on my blog about race, and this is how that happened. Um, are there any bloggers in here, or is it just a weird subculture to you? Okay. It is a weird subculture, I will admit. But there is a woman in the world of blogging, and um, she goes by the name of The Nester. And one year, she challenged bloggers to write for 31 days in October about the same topic. So you write every day for 31 days. And the very first time I participated in this, we had just moved from, we had downsized. We had a larger house, and then we sold it, and we moved to a smaller house. And so I wrote every day about living small. Easy. People, you know, people could resonate with that. Well, the next year, I just had this sense that I should write 31 days about living in my brown skin. And I contacted this friend of mine that I met online. She is a white woman. She had, at that time, one biological child, and she had adopted an African-American daughter. So she had these two little girls, same age, one black, one white, just had interesting experiences going to the grocery store, questions people would ask her, you know, just, I don't know, weird questions. Are they both yours? You know, those kinds of questions. And so I contacted her. I said, hey, Rachel, I think that I'm going to write 31 days on my living in my brown skin. Would you consider writing a guest post for this series? And she said, sure, that's a great idea. I'll do that. So got done emailing her. And then I said to myself, I'm not doing that. Who wants to talk about that? Nobody wants to hear about that. Nobody wants to talk about race. I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to do that. So I said, never mind. So it's supposed to start October 1st. September 28th, I'm online. Never, rarely am I on Twitter. But I was on Twitter, and my friend, Rachel, had a tweet. And she said, I'm so excited. It was, this is not it, because it's more than 140 characters, what I'm going to say. But this is the gist. I'm so excited that this African-American woman is going to talk about race in America for 31 days. You should follow this series. And there was a link. And I thought, yay, somebody's going to talk about race. This is awesome. I'm going to click the link so I can follow her. And I clicked the link, and it was my picture. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, now I have to talk about race for 31 days because this woman has a pretty big platform. And, um, you know, they were all, all her followers were like, yes, we're going to follow this. And so 
I had to pull it together, and I had to write 31 days about um, living in my brown skin. And I, people, I did not want to have this conversation any more than some of you in this room want to have this conversation. I did not want to talk about it. But the truth of the matter is that was in 2012, and we are continuing that conversation on my blog. People want to talk about this, and the goal there is just to make it safe for people to ask their questions, make their comments, and not feel whack-a-mold when they do it. When it started, there were people who said things on my blog that I... They just cut me to the core. I was livid, and I would go to my husband, who is level-headed in these kinds of situations, and I would say, look at this, and he could interpret that, and he said, well, you know, just remember, this is, they have probably been thinking about entering this conversation for months, if not years, and this is their very first venture out into this conversation. Do not, that's how I got the term, don't hit them over the head with your opinion. Give them grace. And what I learned from that experience, and you can go to the next, tip, the next um, slide, is that the best way to have these conversations is at the table. It's good. It's good for churches to have conversations get started like this. Have someone come and talk with you about the topic and then encourage you to continue the conversation at the table, in person, face-to-face. It's okay to have conversations like this on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. It is. It's okay. But the best place to have these conversations is at the table, face-to-face, one-on-one. And what you're going to find there, because this is just the absolute truth, having these conversations, you will offend someone, and someone will offend you. That is going to happen. It just is. There's no way you can get away, out, around, over, under it. It's just going to happen. But the Bible tells us that love hopes the best. That's the translation of 1 Corinthians 13. Love hopes the best. So if you sit at the table and you know you are going to be offended and you're going to offend, but that is not the intent. The intention is to get past the offense to the other side. Because what we've done for pretty much our history is get to the offense and turn around and go back the other way. But what Christ is calling us to is to sit through the offense, believing that love hopes the best, because what he's got for us is on the other side of the offense. We can't get to it if we turn our back when we find it, because we're going to find it. We are going to bump up against offense. Not offense around the yard, but offense, O-F-F-E-N-S-E. So stay at the table. So what's next? That's our next slide. And I, I just want to um, encourage you, if you are feeling, okay, I think I might be able to get out there to the edge of this conversation. Or um, if you're already into the conversation and you, you know, just wonder, what do I do now? Where do I go? What do I say? Uh, one of the, the, the very first thing, of course, that I would encourage you to do is to pray. Because if you're there, God has got, you're going to meet up with somebody and you're going to have the conversation. If your heart is in a place where you're, you're entertaining the thought of being open to these conversations, 
God is going to give you an opportunity. So I would encourage you to be prayerful about that. Chuck Swindoll years ago said, whenever you are in a difficult situation, the best way you can be prepared beforehand for that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I would encourage you to anticipate that you will have an opportunity, and so pray about it. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is to read the book of Acts in the Bible. Take your time, read it slowly, ask God to give you the lens to see it as his story of diversity, his intent for diversity in the body of Christ, because it's there in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, it starts out, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes in, and there are people there from all different countries, all different languages, and everyone there can hear the gospel in their own language. And it just continues the entire book of Acts. So I would encourage you to read that. And then the, the third thing I would suggest, and Helen was here for the first service. She's not here this time, but a dear friend of mine who lives in Lincoln is a great resource for anyone interested in having these types of conversations. Her name is Dr. Helen Fagan. And when our church, um, when my husband learned that he was called to the ministry or he was going to go into the ministry, he and I really were interested in doing multicultural, multi-ethnic ministry. So we've lived in Michigan and New York and all up and down the eastern seaboard, and in order to do multicultural ministry, the Lord moved us to Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places, where it's 3% African-American. Woohoo! Um, but, but, you know, I have learned so much about what I thought multicultural ministry would be and what um, multi-ethnic ministry would be, and there is so much opportunity here in this town to have cross-cultural conversations and to advance the conversation about race in the church in America. So we called Helen Fagan when our congregation was ready to do serious work about racial reconciliation, and she administers an inventory. It's called the Intercultural Development Inventory. You take this inventory, and it tells you where you are on that journey. Are you the beginning? The first phase is denial, and then the final phase is adaptation, and then there's everything in between. So it just tells you where you fall on that spectrum as an individual. You could take it as a congregation. You could take it as a leadership team. You can take it as a family. It tells you where your family falls on that spectrum, and then Dr. Fagan could tell you, if you wanted, you know, what, what are some steps that you could take next? What does this mean? How did you get to here? And maybe what do you need to do to get to the, because the assumption is if you're taking the inventory that you want to progress along this continuum. So what do you, how do you get to the next, the next phase? So pray, read Acts, the, the book of Acts in the Bible, and then consider if you want um, to actually, you know, if you like data and stuff like that, consider talking to Helen Fagan. So after that, and you can go to the next slide, I would ask God to tell you, where you are on the journey. So just, you know, just determining where are you on the journey. Are you on the couch with the remote control? And if you are, that's fine. Are you out there in the highways and byways? If you are, that's fine. If you're somewhere in between, wherever you are, it is fine to be where you are. You don't need to be anywhere else right now. But it's helpful to know where you are. The next thing I would recommend, and you can go to the next slide, is to try sitting at a different table. There's a book by Michael Emerson, Michael O. Emerson, called People of the Dream. 
If you like data and research, um, this is a good book, but it's also mixed with story. He is a white guy who lives in North Carolina, I believe. He's a professor down there, and he is, has been asking the same question I've been asking my whole life, but from a different perspective. And he's actually gone out and talked to churches who are doing multicultural ministry. And he has, while I really, really appreciate him and his research, um, and I'll t- let me tell you this piece first. He has set this standard. He said a, a congregation is diverse when less than 80% of the congregation is the same race. So let's just say it's, a congr- it's an African-American congregation, and there are 10 people in the congregation. That church would be considered diverse if two of those people were not African-American. So that could be one Asian person, one Latino, one white, two white people, you know, two people. So... Imagine yourself as one of those two people. I don't know that you would feel that it was necessarily diverse when you went in there, but it's a place to begin, like tithing. 10% is a place to begin with giving all of ourselves to Christ, to God. 10% is a beginning point, and 20% with regard to diversity is a starting point for us in the congregation. So I would encourage you to find a place where you can sit at a table where you are part of the 20%. So... I say this and people say, but I don't know where to go. I don't know anybody. I don't know what to do. Where do I start? And I would encourage you to explore some churches where people don't look like you. There are some African-American churches here in town. You are welcome to come and visit us at First Baptist. We don't have it perfect. We are not doing it right. We are a little quirky. We're a downtown church. Um, But you're definitely welcome to come and visit us one Sunday. We're not trying to steal you from here, but you're welcome to come and visit or talk with us. There are opportunities to volunteer. Um, The Asian American Center is on O Street. There are schools where you can volunteer. City Impact has some great opportunities to volunteer. Um, And so I would just encourage you to find an opportunity to sit at a different table. And when I say that, what I mean is not... A lot of people, and this was my first reaction too, inviting people to my table, like having a dinner thing at my house. And that's a good thing. That's a good start. But what I'm really encouraging us to do is get to someone else's table, be on their turf and in their context and get to their table. And then the next thing I would recommend, next slide, which I've already alluded to, is when you go to the table, leave your mallet, check it at the door, You can bronze it or bury it or burn it or whatever, but I don't think that the mallet is very productive in our conversation, so I would just encourage you to leave it um, out of the conversation. And then I would just want to encourage us one more time to listen to this verse from Ephesians. This really is my rallying cry, and it is the reason that I, it's one of the reasons that I went to Ferguson. When Ferguson happened, I was just, You know, the media was too much for me, and I just really felt like I needed to see it and hear it and feel it and touch it and experience it for myself. And so one morning, I was in a hotel room. We had gone to a family reunion, and we were driving home that day from Michigan. Yay, Michigan. And um, I was, for some reason, weird reason, I felt like I should iron my pants. I never iron anything. But the hotel has an iron, and so I was ironing my pants, and the news was on talking about Ferguson and I think it's just that movement of smoothing stuff out that opened up some space in me. And I felt like I should go to Ferguson. And what I said out, what I felt inside of me when I said that was, yes, you should go. I felt like that was a 
um, the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you should go. And what I said outside of me was, uh-oh. And my husband said, uh-oh, because when I say uh-oh, it means I've got some idea. I don't have any details. I just have some weird big idea. He said, don't tell me. I don't want to know. And so we get in the car from Michigan, driving to home, and the whole time I'm thinking, I should tell him, I need to tell him, I need to go to Ferguson, but he has told me, don't tell him. So we get to Iowa, like Des Moines, and I finally say, don't you want to hear my idea? And he says, okay, tell me your idea. And I said, I think I need to go to Ferguson. And he said, you should go. Just like that. No hesitation. And so, and I don't recommend this, I was driving, but I started calling people and um, saying, hey, I think I'm supposed to go to Ferguson. And there were four, four people that I invited to go. And all four of them said, I think I'm supposed to go too. How are we going to, we, none of us had any money. I had just been to a family reunion, had no money to spend. But um, we, money just came. We did not put, we didn't do a Kickstarter, nothing. That was a Tuesday, and on Friday we were in St. Louis. And there were five of us who were writers, and we just went down there because we wanted to see it, hear it, feel it, touch it for ourselves, experience it for ourselves. And we're all writers, and we wanted to give other people in Ferguson an opportunity to share their story. That was, that was our goal for going down there. Um, and so I would just encourage you to be open to the conversation. My experience in Ferguson changed my perspective. It changed. It will forever impact how I talk about race, especially to the church. It will forever impact it, and I would not have had that perspective had I not gone there for myself, had I not been open to the conversation and to what God has to say. So Ferguson is just a, it's an incident that has opened up a door where people are willing to step their toe over the edge of the conversation. We may never know what actually happened there. And that is not the point here. The point is that it has opened the door. And if you're feeling like, hey, I want to get in that talk. I want to get in that conversation. But I don't want people to think I'm racist. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to offend anybody. You will. But love hopes the best. People will offend you. But love hopes the best. So have grace. So last slide. And I'll read this one more time. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall that we use to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion. He created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Dear God, thank you for this time that you've given. Thank you for this church, this pastor, this congregation, the volunteers, the worship leaders, the people behind the scenes, I pray that you will bless the work of their hands. I pray that you will be present in their conversations. I pray that they will trust that love hopes the best, that you will give them grace to sit at the table through the offense to get to the other side and to experience the fullness of what you have for us there.
Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us and teaches us and reminds us everything of what Jesus taught when he was here and who interprets our moaning and groaning to you. Thank you for Jesus who came and lived here and taught and healed and performed miracles, was crucified on a cross, dead and buried, and rose on the third day and now sits at your right hand making intercession on our behalf. And thank you for being our Father, our Creator, for loving us, creating us on purpose, and rejoicing over us with singing. Thank you that you make us new. You give us a fresh start every day. Your mercies are new every morning. Because of your great love, we are not consumed. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please?